I'm Melody Asani. I'm Julie Burns Walker. Today, we welcome you back to the Butterfly Forecast. Smooshy Angel. Hi, Smooshy. How are you doing today? I am doing wonderful because here we are again in the wonderful world of conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm so excited today because the phrase that sort of inspired today's podcast is that we stand on the shoulders of giants. And It's funny because we actually both have different reference points as to where we've heard it. It turns out that Isaac Newton is sort of coined as the first to say it. But I love it because, I, you know, I just did that shoe with Jordan. It was my first performance shoe. Amazing. And that was sort of one of the first quotes that I thought of, and I put it on the inside of the shoe just because— These basketball players are sort of, for me, the giants that I grew up with. You know, I I grew up idolizing them and looking up to them, and they were my first sort of like, quote-unquote, superheroes. And, of course, as I've gotten older, the, the phrase has meant a lot of different things for me, including thinking of my own ancestors, but also that we all come from people. And... That we're not here, not only are we not here alone, but we didn't get here alone. It's kind of relieving, you know, it's kind of relieving to think that, you know, it's not just up to me. I'm just building upon something that's already come before me and that hopefully people after me will continue to build on it. And that me, after I transition out of this plane in some way, will be able to still contribute to that possibly. But what made you, like, what inspired you about that quote? Like, where does it, where did it take you? Why did you want to talk about that today? I actually think it's just one of my very favorite quotes. I love the concept of a continuum. I think it's very confirming for me, especially, you know, a near-death experienced person. It's very confirming that the time we're here is actually built on those who are here before us and that no one is ever the people. We are all the people. Our species is one species. And I love contemplating whoever was here from the very beginning is still here. And it makes life uniquely paradoxical. You are here alone to make your decisions and make what you will out of what you were given and also, you know, all the garbage you inherited to transform equally. But you're not here alone. Wait, so what do you mean by all the people that were here before are still here? Because what about the people that aren't notable or that didn't contribute to our knowledge? How do we know they're still here? Because we are made of something more than you know, Newtonian machinery, our organs and glands don't just work together functionally. Um, We are made of the stuff that knits it together, the energy that flows through us. And we are concrete material, humans, flesh and blood, but we also are something mysterious, 
So equally, we're building on both awarenesses, you know, and speaking of standing on the shoulders of giants, if you look at any of the world's holy books, you'll see that all the different religions actually have different languaging for the most beautiful threads of truth. And we are standing progressively on their shoulders. So, you know, yes, people, anyone you ask is usually familiar with basic tenets of every major religion. They can quote something. And I think that's fascinating because it's it's something we've built upon rather than like um, a rise and a fall and a rise and a fall. We just keep evolving like our species. So those who have been here before us, their souls are still present, though we are not aware of how the energy influences our thought and our inspiration. And I think even, for example, it's fascinating to me in the arts how I get to meet young musicians who are really, really obsessed with someone from decades ago. Or, you know, they're they're obsessed with cool jazz. And I go, you're obsessed with cool jazz? Like, where did you hear cool jazz? It's not in the top 40. And they're going to, they'll start telling a story about how the first time they encountered those uh, sounds and which musicians and which albums and maybe it's a label, Blue Note, and, you know, how that inspired them and that's what they're into. Or, you know, my dad, uh, as you know, is an artist. And I remember when I was very, very young, one of my sisters had a Matisse over her crib. (laughs) (laughs) And... um. I was drawing something, and one of my parents' friends, a lot of artists gathered in our home, they were saying, oh, Julie, you're drawing, it's a little bit, those colors are like a little Matisse. And my little sister stood up in her crib, and she said, Matisse is dead. (laughs) (laughs) It was like the only thing she knew about Matisse Mm -hmm. is she had heard them say he was dead. And that was her reference. But when she said that, Smishy, I was immediately thinking, oh, I hadn't thought of that. So this design is still here, but the artist is not here. Mm -hmm. So we're still getting inspired by what that artist did. So I think standing on the shoulders of giants for me has always been something that I've been aware of and for my own life too because... Like you were talking about how you've been influenced and inspired by your ancestors. Especially you and I have spoken a great deal about who has influenced us. And so I do think that that is something that enhances life and allows you to take your place boldly, but also with humility. You know, because nobody can say, I I created everything about what I just did. I guess I'm more interested in the parts of that that I don't have a an awareness of than the ones that I do. I mean, it's so easy to reference things in history, even if it's from decades and decades ago. Even like for me, you know, I, I definitely went through a period of time where I was obsessed with Egyptian civilization. I still am. You know, it, it's still fascinating to me just how much we know I'm always kind of 
looking to see what new will be discovered or if some new thing has been uncovered or but that's something that I know about you know and then I know that there's different types of inspiration that comes to me or that I pick up on that I don't have a direct reference for but I know it's inspired can I ask you something sure this is exactly why it's so exciting You know, um, when you were in that continuum of your fascination with Egyptian culture, I mean, you went to Egypt. Mm -hmm. And then also in some of your own designs for quite some time, you had the Eye of Cleopatra um, in some of your works. And, And it's inspired a lot of people. And right at that time when you were doing that and I saw that you had that eye, I kind of chuckled to myself because when I was very small for years and years and years and years, I would draw one eye over all my homework, over everything I did. And my dad one day said, I love how you draw that eye, Jewel, but do you know that there's more on the face? Like, what about the other eye? (laughs) (laughs) What about this person's ears? And I I was laughing because I was like, you don't get it. Yes, I get there are other parts but this one eye is symbolic. Mm. So what it represented to you is it got you involved in culture. And for me, I started getting into every culture that um, represented one eye as an emblem of, of meaning for something and researching that. So you and I went in separate directions with the same symbol. Right. I love that. That's what I mean. Yeah. Can create yeah. endlessly different things. Or even like what you're talking about, like maybe one thing that is unrelated, but it takes you into a whole new direction. Uh, Maybe it's one part you discovered. Maybe no one discovered the way this connects to what you're thinking. There have been times where I've designed things or I've made things. And again, I can't think of a specific example because it's been such a theme, but I'll do something and then... Uh, somebody will tell me like, oh, it's so cool how you put this, this, and that together. But I didn't know about this, this, and that. I had just put it together. But it turns out that it's already been done. Somebody had already done that, you know, in another era or in another decade. And to me, that's really cool because I'm like, how, how did I pick up on that thing that somebody already brought without knowing that they brought it. And it's kind of the best place for a designer. It's kind of that magic place because you want to be able to do that without directly referencing them because you you want it to come from you, but you don't want it to like mimic to exactly what it was. You just kind of want it to be your own interpretation. And for me, oftentimes, if I have a reference, it's really difficult for me to interpret it without being influenced by the original reference or by even wanting to alter the original reference. So, hmm. I mean, I, I, it really begs the question, what's the difference between being inspired by something and plagiarizing something? Mm, totally. A lot of people copy something and say, oh, I was inspired. And it's like, that's not inspired. As you know, I've had that experience, too, where people took word for word what I wrote and then reworded it 
um, verbatim and said it was their original. And I, it doesn't offend me, but I, I do scratch my head to wonder why did you put all that work into that when you could have just shared what you really do think, what you really have discovered. I, I'd be more interested. And, and you know, funny enough, Suji, I'm rather obsessed with Einstein's theory of simultaneity. I bring it up a lot because it's exactly this principle. Like, why did the light bulb get invented at multiple places at once? And, of course, who we think invented it, it's fascinating to go all the way back and see how many inventors there were simultaneously without having any communication or any literature to draw from. So there is uh, another part of this, which is people are equally inspired about concepts, sometimes at the same time in history in different places. Or like our quote today, I was telling you um, when I was in college is when that quote was misquoted to me as this. It was told, if I appear so great, it is because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. And they attributed it to Henry David Thoreau. And then you were talking about how that was really from Sir Isaac Newton, which was, by the way, in 1676. That's when Isaac Newton said it. But he didn't say it that way. He said, I have seen so far. It is because uh I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, which is different. It is a different attribute because one is yourself and the other is what you're gazing at. But what's funny is Sir Isaac Newton actually attributed his inspiration from a philosopher, uh, Bernard of Chart in France. And he said, you know, so many years earlier, he said that he called us, like our current generation, the moderns. Like whatever generation you're in, he referred to us as the moderns. And he said, moderns are like dwarves perched on the shoulders of giants. The giants represented the ancients. Mm. So now we even have like a bigger look at like someone who's really seeing a connection of generations and eras. And that's, you know, what I was talking about. But funny enough, um, I was looking a little further back and actually, Bernard of Chart, he got it from Greek mythology and was inspired by, like, you know, um, Orion, the giant. He was a blind giant, Orion, and he carried his servant, Sedalion, on his shoulders because he was his eyes. Ah. And so that was, like, uh, the earliest reference. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, it keeps coming back because it must be just part of reality. That's so crazy because whenever I think of it, I really just think of it as ancestors, people who are no longer here, whose shoulders we stand upon. And, you know, embarrassingly, I guess I'm just (laughs) a real modern. But what brought the quote back to me was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar because he wrote a book and his that was the title of his book. And I knew that the quote was not from him, that he had used it, but it was the first time that it came sort of back into my periphery. And, you know, it's funny is when I lived in Southern Africa, um, I was still writing a lot of and performing music, and I'd written this song, Standing on the Shoulders of Giants. And, of course, I wrote in English, my mother tongue, 
And I was performing it and singing to people who didn't speak English at all. When I heard them singing the refrain in English, it used to crack me up so much because that was their favorite part. They'd just say, sing it over and over. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. And I would laugh and I was like, in a weird way, I bet it just connects. It connects the idea. It's thematically, energetically, a familiar theme, which it is through that culture. Because your ancestors are who you do everything to pay honor to. So you do your best in your life to pay honor to those who walked before you, regardless of what they achieved or left behind or said or did for you or not. It doesn't matter. They gave their best by being here before you. If they weren't here, you wouldn't be here either. Well, there's also the aspect of it that's um, cellular, right? I mean, I think you could probably speak to this because it's like you inherit. Don't we inherit like through our DNA and in our bodies, everybody that we've come from before us back to the beginning of time? Yes, to make us our best possible creation. That's a trip. When you look at people, because you look at in your practice, you look at people on a cellular level How does that come up? Do you see that as a thing or is it more just like a person's design and then maybe you could see a reference point to something in like somebody in their past or is it just like a ton, like tons of people? Like how do you see that from your vantage point? Yeah, and it's such a good question because the answer is all the above. Like sometimes, you know, let's say I have like, 10 people, you know, in one day who have 10 stomach aches, then I'm going to notice with one person, oh, you're eating the wrong food and it's giving you stomach aches. And as soon as we figure that out, they're like, oh my gosh, you helped me so much. And all I did is find the thing that was bothering them. But in other cases, it's very complex. I I might observe that they have a predisposition, not just genetically, but from a cellular imprint. In other words, stress in their life and the way they perceive life gets translated to a stomach ache when they go past a certain point. And I'll see nothing but connections to a cellular imprint. And it might be generational. Sometimes I'll notice like 10, 15 generations. Often when I've ever shared that with a person, they will come back and say to me, you know, that's crazy. My grandmother used to tell me that, that her grandmother had it and her grandmother told her her grandmother had it. So, you know, it's already there in their family histories, their family stories. What do you mean once they go past a certain point that gets triggered? Well, if stress amounts to something, then it triggers a visceral response. Oh, if response. the stress goes mm-hmm. back a certain... Oh, okay. I thought you meant if they went back in history past a certain point, then it gets... Uh, That's possible too. Like sometimes people have uh, extremely, we all have diverse history. So what are we drawing from when we say someone is coming from their cellular memory? Perhaps you have ancestors that are very powerful and, and were very empowered and made decisions that were empowering. But it's possible that the following generation dealt with things beyond their control and 
were unable to achieve what could have been theirs and their great potential. And it might skip generations. That might have to do with collective history, you know, how we go from one end to the the other in terms of the pendulum. And, and some of our ancestors have been traumatically disempowered, traumatized, abused, and some are abusers. You know, every one of us, we've inherited the abusers and the abused. We are all of them. Because we come from both. We come from everything. So it's ours to decide what you will do with this lifetime, with all that you were given and all that you were not given, and all that you were handed that you had to deal with that is unjust, but also things you've been favored with that are also not just, just blessed. And we have to make of what we will with all of that combination, which is why it's very important to give honor to those who were before us. Because however poor a job they did with you, whatever you believe, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, and even the ancestry you come from, if you're not happy with it, we're here to put all that we are to transform it. We're, we're here to add to the species, not just our own self or even our own lineage, you know. Sometimes um, there'll be cycles of people call me after many years of we worked together last maybe whenever, eight years ago, 10 years ago, longer, 20 years ago. And they'll say, you probably don't remember me. I came to you when I had blah, blah, blah diagnosis or this, you know, I was uh, really struggling with just getting up in the morning or I had these debilitating headaches and you told me it was this and I've never eaten that or done that again. I've been headache free ever since, but now this other thing has come up. And I love when that happens because it's very exciting to think, oh, you've already transformed something, integrated it. And now you want the next unfoldment. Mm. And it's so exciting. That's why we've got to start realizing that whomever we stand on the shoulders of, it doesn't have to be genetic. You know, it could be great thinkers and great minds or great artists or great inspirationalists and so on, spiritualists. I love to read from as many spiritual writings and readings as I can get a hold of. Because when I find something I resonate with, or someone who has now conveyed something to me that was abstract before I read it, I'm so indebted to them. And I find out it was 300 years ago. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you. You are now in my prayers. It's, it's so exciting. What does, um, for you, when you think of ancestors, is there something inspirational about that for you? Do, you? do you feel that ancestral presence is with you in your daily life, or is it something philosophical for you? No, I think that it's with me in my daily life. Mm-hmm. I think it's a relationship, just like I have friendships and relationships here I pray for them. I offer things in their name. Mm. I ask them for guidance. I, you know, when I started, I've mentioned this before, when I first started sort of on my journey of trying to 
you know, and like figure out what I was here for, like what my purpose was. I would do this meditation, this guided meditation that I had created for myself. And I called it my boardroom meditation. And I would, you know, I had my own Emmy office building and I had designed the building. I knew exactly what it looked like. It was like a circular building. And then I would go to the front desk and I'd say hello. And it was my secretary was down there and I'd take the elevator up to the top and I had a boardroom. And that's where I invited my ancestors to come. And some of them were my relatives and some of them were not related to me. They were just thinkers or musicians or people that I had trusted or that I felt some kind of connection to. And I treated them like my boardroom, but I'd always leave the door of the boardroom open because I would be like, you know, if there's anybody that I haven't thought of or that I don't know of that thinks that they can help me here, the door is open for you. And sometimes I'd be aware of who would come in and I'd be like, oh, that's cool. (laughs) That person showed up. And other times they wouldn't want to show me who they were, but I know that they were there. Mm. Also, it makes me think of, you know, how you and I have both broken generational patterns in our family histories. You know, like you're the first woman in your family that's probably done a lot of stuff. You're probably the first person in your family that's done a lot of stuff and same And for me, I mean, I I think I have a different orientation to it. I think yours is different because you did have a near-death experience. But for me, it was really challenging going against what my family or what my ancestors had been doing for so long. And it's almost like their voices were in me, not as an encourager, but the opposite. Like, danger, danger, don't do that. Like, what are you doing? But everything in me wanted to do it. And I was like, what is wrong with me, you know, being a designer? What is wrong with me having a voice? But everything in me, it almost felt like ancestral in a weird way. And now I wonder if that was just history through me and maybe through my mom who still subscribes to that, who's here. Like maybe that's just my mom's voice representing the generation of ancestors Hmm. Um, because I don't think my actual ancestors I think I would hope that they had evolved past it wherever they are and are rooting for me to break the chain or to evolve whatever they did or what what they weren't able to do Oh, absolutely. But I love how you give language to your method and your process and your thinking. I thank you so much for breaking that down. It's really inspiring. I, I think that a lot of times what happens is you get a visceral response, like you can't do that. And I so relate to what you're talking about. I may have had near-death experiences, but imagine having a near-death experience in a family where everyone's an atheist. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, I was forbidden to talk about it, forbidden, you know, highly punishable by death. You know, don't bring this up. You're you're pushing our buttons. And so, no, we're not going to even ask. We don't want to know. But I think for myself, what that did is 
it puts you at this place where you have either the choice to defer and become like everyone else and just pretend and go with go with your cultural expectations, which is we just do everything academically and we don't discuss other things that are abstract. Or I be true to myself and I go up against those voices that say, you cannot do this. You may not say things like this out loud. And you're going up against, to me, the opposite of spirituality is not atheism. No, that's just healthy uh, questioning. The opposite of spirituality is superstition. Mm. And I think a lot of people, even who are very religious, are very superstitious. Like, we don't ask these questions. We don't do things these ways. We don't explore diversity of thought because we're afraid. We're afraid of what that will bring. And fear comes from superstition. Because if we truly had spirituality, in other words, lived the humble path of walking the way of the light, Mm. then every one of us would find a spiritual walk that suited us, that we could really get behind, subscribe, and devote our lives to walking and be nothing more. And who wouldn't we get along with? I ask you. You know, religion would no longer be a marker of status or belief. It would be a mark of a humble walk so that someone could identify you. Oh, what? You're walking this walk of a Muslim? Oh, now I know how to support you. Now I know how to be your friend. Oh, you're walking this walk, you know, as a Jew? Oh, I get that cool, I know I know some things, I don't know everything, and so on. Well, you know, in Buddhism, I think people feel very, very uh, friendly towards Buddhism, but they don't usually go further to find out, wow, there are some really stringent walks if you walk the Buddhist path. We should educate ourselves. So that we stop alienating people and their ancestors, because all of our ancestors were ignorant of what they were ignorant, just like we are ignorant of what we are ignorant of. We have an awful lot in common, (laughs) you know? So definitely, I relate to what you're saying. And Smushi, you are a very courageous person. I mean, for for as long as I've known you, the one thing I've always thought to myself is, Wow, so she is incredibly brave. What makes you say that? Because you challenge everything. <laughs> I'm so not. You challenge you might have a visceral response of fear and then you go right back there and challenge the source of fear. Who does that? Most people defer to fear. Fear, you know, Frank Herbert's the mind killer. Fear really is the mind killer. People stop asking questions. Questions lead us to everything. But we all have our deep, dark fears, I think. For sure. And those fears I don't, you know, are very difficult for me. Sometimes I don't go there. But I think for me it's easier. Some are easier to tackle than others. I I, I think when I uncover them and I realize what's in the way or what's at stake, I think that's the big thing. Because sometimes we're scared of something and we think it's okay to remain in that place of fear and to not question it, but we don't really know what's at stake 
Like if you don't question that fear, you don't know what you're missing out on or where you could be stuck or what you could be compromising. And I think every single time I've realized, like, wait, this fear is in the way of this great thing that I want. I feel feel like then I become energized to go through whatever fear it is to get to that thing because the thing that I usually want or my goal is greater than the fear. But how do you get to that place where you don't let fear be the greater thing? Well, sometimes fear is the greater thing for a long time. I mean, I know it's stupid, a stupid example, but the first time I... My chiropractor asked me, he's a chiropractor, but he does other things as well. But he told me that I needed to quit sugar. (laughs) And I know it sounds silly, but I didn't realize I was like, oh, God, I was like, I don't know if I could do this. And then slowly I realized how big of a fear I had to let go of it. Like, I couldn't let go of it. And it was a legit fear. Because it represented something. It represented a lot of things. And I had no idea. And so for months and months and months, he kept telling me, he's like, look, if you want to get better, you have to cut cane sugar out. And finally, one time, I just, I started bawling. I was crying so hard. And I don't really cry in front of people (laughs) often, especially somebody like my chiropractor and I just started crying and crying and I was like I don't know if I could do it and what's crazy is that my body was at stake you know it was like and that even that wasn't enough because comfort was greater comfort was greater it was like my body my health my well-being and then I had a session with you and I was at this period in time where I was really trying to, and I've shared this before, but I was really trying to grow my business because my business had, I'd worked so hard. And then there was like this period of time where it just had plateaued. And I was like, I don't know what to do. I haven't made a single dollar more than I made in the last three years or whatever. I haven't done anything different. And I had literally pulled every trick out of the bag. I didn't know what else I could do. And so I had a session with you and I asked you to look at my, look at that for me. And, and, and I was wondering, like, how can I grow my business? And you were like, okay, well, let me look at your body. And I was like, why do you need to look at my body to look at my business? <laughs> and you were like, well, your body is your vehicle to getting there, right? And I was like, what do you mean? (laughs) And then you broke it down for me in a way, and I don't remember exactly what way, but basically I walked away being like, oh my gosh, my body and what I'm putting in it is determining what I'm available for in my business. And it's actually stopping me from being able to grow my business. That was an example of something being greater than my fear. And it was literally the week before Thanksgiving, which is one of my favorite eating times of the year, and I didn't care. I went on that candida cleanse, and I cut all sugar and everything out, and I've never gone back. It's really hard, though, Smishi. It's very hard when it's something that—talk about ancestral roots and— 
You know, we do stand on the shoulders of our great ancestors, but we also are attached and like in a web of whatever they didn't transform. Yes. You know, there's a tricky part of this. You know, it's funny you're bringing this up, and I know this is super taboo to bring up, but I might as well Um, (laughs) since we're here. (laughs) One of the um, patterns that I notice in my practice is um, men who grew up with fathers who were unfaithful to their mothers. And it goes across uh, ages. It goes across cultures. It goes across races. It's a belief. It's a very profoundly gender superiority-based belief that no man should have to be faithful to one woman. It, it just relates to the history of the inequality and value of the feminine. And so these men grow up hating what their fathers did as watching their mother's grief and how it took them down over the years. And yet when they come of age, they go through the same thing and they do the same thing. Wow. And although we talked about it beforehand, here's what got them to look at it. Here's what got them to go across immense discomfort because they don't want to talk about the spirituality of it. They don't want to talk about the morality of it. They don't even want to talk about the legality of committing, making a personal promise, you know, your personal word. None of those things, are. they they don't flinch. But when I bring up the fact that infidelity and a misuse of sexual hormones, like being completely scattering them in all directions, diminishes their ability to earn money, their ability to make a mark in their career, that is when they're like, let's talk. Let's talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) And I get it. I really get it because it's not like 10 generations long. It goes further back than I can count. And whenever I see this pattern in a male, it's interesting. They come to me because they're upset about it. But what they don't know is they're about to walk into the very same pattern unless they're well-armed and understand exactly what does it do to them when they understand that biologically it disempowers them. And then from the biological hormonal base being gone, the neurological follows. So now they don't have the body for it. They don't have the energy for it. And now they don't have the brains for it. All because of that pattern. And I love when you break it down how somebody actually starts to say back, you know, oh my God, I've actually experienced that. Wait, now that you told me it's like that, I can tell you, yep, every time I've engaged in X, Y, and Z, I come back and for some reason for the next two weeks, my work really suffers. Like I'm just not with it. And I go, yes, 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 they're connected. Now do you see why you have to choose what you decide to do with that energy and be faithful to it? It's incredible, but that's what I mean. It's like, I feel like we're so small-minded and we're so compartmentalized that we don't think everything is as connected as it is or we don't realize how connected everything is 
And then we don't understand the consequences. So we blame it on other things, which is probably where superstition comes in. Yes. You know, where we insert a lot of superstition. Well, I guess this is just what God wants for me. Or, well, I guess it was just meant to be, or it is what it is, or, you know, all those stupid phrases or these understandings that really it's like, no, if we could just be accountable for that and then seek for, seek that within ourselves, like, what am I doing? Or how am I playing this out? Or how am I continuing this pattern? Or what knowledge am I missing? Yeah. So that I can, like, now close the gap on this and be an integrated person and move forward in my life. Totally. And not either blame the, well, it's just what I inherited. It's just the way I am. You know, people don't get it. I've heard this. If there's one comment people make to me more than any other when they can't give something up that's destructive, it's that. Well, people just don't understand. This is just the way I am. This is the way I came. And I always tell them, yeah, that may be true, but it's kind of like a patch of land that's full of weeds. It doesn't mean that's the only thing that grows there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we weed the garden if you want something to grow there. And especially if you want something that's like herbs and flowers and fruits and vegetables. Yeah, you can plant any great thing you want. You do have to clear the weeds out first. Yeah. Ooh, smooshy. This is a big theme. Yeah, I kind of love it, though. Because, too, I think that for me, now I really feel like those ancestors are helping me. Like, now that I have awareness of that, you know, like I have an auntie, and again, back to just like my little example, who loved sweets, like loved them and couldn't quit them. And I understand why. You know, she suffered a lot physically and uh, for a lot of other reasons because she couldn't quit them. Or even my mom. You know, like I was thinking because I'm pregnant now and I was thinking of like how much sugar my mom consumes, especially while she was pregnant. I came out almost 10 pounds. (laughs) (laughs) You know, she had to go through a C-section and like all this stuff with me. And poor, like I came out and within the first month, like I lost all the weight because I wasn't meant to be eating all that sugar and stuff in the womb. Right. You had a chance to like find your own chemistry. Well, I think that, you know, the same thing is true with fears. But I also think uh, the same is true with anything that kind of is your iconic trigger. You know, I know like for myself, Anytime something seems to be a roadblock that I worked hard not to have there, you know, that I did due diligence to make sure it wasn't there. When I get multiple roadblocks, it takes a lot of courage for me to say, I'm just going to look at it. That's what I'm going to do, rather than make any conclusion at all. You know, um, one of the things that always inspired me in my childhood is it seemed like for me I was trying to put together my near-death experiences with being in the weirdness of everyday life. Everyday life seems so utterly superficial and ridiculous. Like 
why are we spending our time doing all these activities that don't have a thing to do with being human? <laughs> why, why? And why don't kids talk about things that are important? Why are they only talking about what they watch on television? What's wrong with these people? You know, it was hard for me to like figure out my own footing and be part of a culture, but not follow it. And when I first learned about the Underground Railway, like the Underground Railroad inspired me to no end, like uh, William Still and Harriet Tubman. I went back or, you know, Frederick Douglass, I went back in their lives and when they were suffering, when they were not free. And I was like, what if they stopped there? What if they just stopped there? We would never have heard of them. They wouldn't be our icons to greatness. And I live very close to one of the Underground Railroad um, outlets uh, up in Glencoe in Illinois. So I read everything I could get on who came through that portal, who, who were the people, what was their early beginnings. I was obsessed with it because the more I read about their disempowerment in the beginnings, the more it gave me courage to keep going. And I feel that we need those. We need to understand that not every ancestor, not every giant you're standing on the shoulders of is a direct connection to you, but maybe it is a connection to where you're headed. Maybe it's an ancestor because you have decided to be brave and break the mold and patterns of history. Oof, and I love what Harriet Tubman said. She said, I freed over a thousand slaves and I could have freed a thousand more if they knew that they weren't they were slaves or if they knew they weren't free. <laughs> yes. Yes. And you know, full circle that goes back to Henry David Thoreau because he talked about disobedience in a different context. Um, he talked about that if we would only like be disobedient to what enslaves us, I'm paraphrasing. I love that. I just love the courage behind that sentiment. What? Like we hate the word disobedience. It's like a, such a big trigger. And then this is more about understanding that true civilization requires that we ask questions so that we find truth and get better at it. Mm. Well, let me ask you something personal and kind of silly because I'm I'm curious now. Like just from our conversation earlier, I was trying to think of like, what what are some fears, like real fears that I have that I can't get over? <laughs> so one of them, I mean, there's so many, but one of them is that I, can't, I don't go into the ocean. I just cannot go into the ocean, right? But I also know that my dad almost had, a, you know, he almost drowned and died in the ocean and my whole life, he never set foot in the ocean again because he was part of a, he would, they were, his family was trying to smuggle him out of Iran and he was on like a cargo ship. The cargo ship went down and everybody on the ship died except for him. And he was a really incredible swimmer and he survived. But after that, he never got into the water again. And from the time I was young, I mean, I'd go in a little bit. But I've never, like, it's like a legit fear, like apoplectic, like cannot get into the ocean. There's too much. It's a whole other world. 
It's a crazy world yeah. in there. And I'm not, it's not my world. Sushi, you <laughs> or, know. Yeah, and I know you have the same one. But like, or other stuff, like I'm terrified of ghosts. I know that sounds what? silly. Yes, I still to this day, and maybe it has to do with my dad dying young. Everything comes from my dad. But maybe it has to do with him dying when I was young, but I just felt like he was going to come to me. And at night, I'd be like, I love you. I really love you. And I miss you so much. But please, please don't show yourself to me. Like, don't come here because it's scary. And even now, I mean, I'm not really like that now. But even sometimes, like, if I feel something, I'm just like, don't, don't, nothing. I don't want to see anything. I don't want to know anything. Like, come through my dreams. Like, come in another way. (laughs) (laughs) And you saw dead people. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. But Smishy, first of all, you just said a mouthful. Can we just acknowledge you Mm -hmm. said a whole bunch of things? So my point is like going past fears. And maybe those are just, maybe there's a difference between like child fears that stick or like true fears. I don't know. What? What do you think? Smushy. Oh, my gosh. Smushy, you're killing me. Smushy, first of all, yet a lot of things that people, adults, I would say the majority of things that adults are hold fears around, most of the things came from their childhood. Mm-hmm. The majority of children in the world are not treated well, much less respectfully, much less without traumas, and I won't go into more details. However, the majority of adults in the world have been traumatized when they were children uh, from some form of abuse. Here's the problem. The perception that that child took about why it happened stays with them for the rest of their lives because they're too ashamed to share it. And so there's nobody there to shine a light on it and say, no, this was not your fault. You were a child. You couldn't have gotten out of that. You did nothing wrong. What you did, the part you played as you existed, you couldn't have gotten out of harm's way. And I'm sorry this happened to you. People need to really be seen and heard in reality. So we don't have that in our lives, and it's not in our culture, and we're still full of blame, not to mention the distortions we carry about it. You know, we have our own story in our mind. Oh, but I did know something, but then I did this, and that's why that happened. Like, we put this kind of cat's cradle thread together, and it comes out false, but we don't know it. So that's a really big thing. I do think that, like with your father, what an extraordinary, first of all, what an extraordinary feat that he he was the sole survivor. And what a trauma. And I'm just in awe that your dad lived after that at all. And, you know, raised families and and became what he was and was an artist and, you know, was such an, a unique thinker. Um, such a trailblazer in many regards. So I think that's extraordinary. And then you inherited that, Smushi. Yes, a fear of water comes with it. But Smushi, you inherited your father's incredible ingenuity. How he managed to swim to shore is nothing short of, of a miracle from being at sea. 
you have to look at both things you inherited and and also you know the fears as well and in terms of ghosts nobody knows what a ghost is and i only saw you know my my childhood was riddled with seeing people had passed on only because i couldn't tell the difference yet that that's all because i was just coming from a near death experience and so i was so close to what we you know would say like the proverbial veil that delicate veil between life and death which none of us like to know about but we do innately know about and were you scared no I, i didn't know that we had an option you know it wasn't until i was in my 30s that my mentor margaret said julie just because a person's dead doesn't mean you have to talk to them she said that unasked when we were alone uh working in the rural areas and i just stared at her for like way too long. I I was like, how do you know that that's what I deal with? She's like, I know. And when I had my near-death experiences, I dealt with that. And I was like, what do you mean you're not, you don't have to answer? She was like, Julie, just like life, you go through crowds of people. You don't go and handshake every person in a crowd, do you? And I said, no, but I feel obliged to. (laughs) You know, I always feel guilty that I don't. And she was like, wow, yeah, you were too young. Nobody told you. You don't, you don't need to. So that's why, that's why we have this beautiful trust in one another as, you know, the abstract part of us, our spiritual reality. We have to believe in people. They're going to evolve without talking to me. And Sushi, there is no such thing as a soul that's coming after you that's interested in showing up like Casper the ghost and you know, <laughs> there's no such thing. People have their destinies and what people are all on the way to the light. Everyone is on the way to the light in one form or another, at one time or another. And we just love the possibility of thinking we know more than other people in order to frighten other people and then make them beholden or disempowered. And then we have the power, which is why we this whole topic today exists. We have to understand our humble place and not use any of the things we learn in life to frighten others into submission. That's despicable. It's a deplorable way to use your human faculties. Sushi, you said it all. Thank you, Sushi. Thank you. We just left people with a big <laughs> chunk of something. I hope it doesn't confuse anyone more. Swim in that. Yes, swim in that juice, (laughs) in that ocean. (laughs) I won't be swimming, but you do it. (laughs) And I will be on the shore. Yeah. (laughs) And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us. See you next time.